Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very pleased, very honored to bring the conversation I had with Joseph Ledoux. Joe is the Henry and Lucy Moses Professor of Science at NYU in the Center for Neuroscience. He's also the director of the Emotional Brain Institute at NYU. He's also professor of psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry at NYU Langone Medical School. Uh, he's well established in the field of, of neuroscience. Um, much of his work is focused on brain mechanisms of memory, motion. Uh, he's also the author of a handful of books such as The Integrated Mind with uh, Mike Kazanica, The Emotional Brain, uh, Synaptic Self, Anxious, The Deep History of Ourselves, and the most recent, The Four Realms of Existence, A New Theory of Being Human. Uh, that is the book we discuss in this conversation. We start by talking about his work with Kazanica on split-brain patients. Uh, this is kind of what he was initially known for. Uh, Ledoux is uh, obviously known for many things, uh, such as uh, his work on fear. But the split brain uh, patients was kind of uh, early goings in his career, and it's really, really nice to hear him uh, talk about that. Some of the kind of behind the scenes of how they organize this work. So it was, that was very uh, exhilarating to hear. He talks about the new book, the four realms of, ex- of existence, and what those four realms are. We talk about the idea of the self personality and temperament, integrated information theory and panpsychism, the extended mind, habits and goal-directed behaviors. We talk about a little bit of the Cambrian explosion and consciousness. We talk about granular and subgranular areas of the prefrontal cortex for consciousness. We spend a good amount of time on Tolving's three layers of consciousness. Cognition as a psychological concept. Fear. Uh, we talk about the higher order of consciousness and that whole system that he's uh, kind of laid out in the book, mentalese, the role of AI in consciousness, and uh, many other topics. Uh, it was a real, again, honor and big treat for me uh, to talk with Joe. As I say in the conversation, I've you know read his papers in grad school. I've looked at a lot of his his research. I've read his books. He's absolutely tremendous for the field of neuroscience. Uh, much of his work has been super influential. He's won you know, obviously numerous awards, and you know it's it's it was really nice to see uh, in this most recent book, the Four Realms of Existence, how he he kind of puts all of his his uh, life's work together in a kind of cohesive system. Um, obviously, he was quite kind and generous in talking with me. He explains things extremely well, uh, and it just makes for a uh, great conversation. I, I probably could have just you know, listened to him for another uh, two hours. I, I just download all of his wisdom. Uh, it was it was such a blast. I really really enjoyed it. Learned a lot as always, and um, so it was a real uh, privilege and, and a big treat. As always, you can listen to uh, this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. Uh, so get over there, subscribe. Uh, Tell your friends. Uh, feel free to uh, to contribute if you if you want. If you like what I'm doing here on the podcast, I'm also at uh, YouTube as well for folks that like it there. Um, and so it's much appreciated when people share the podcast and they tell their friends and they tell others. So uh, big big thanks to all the listeners out there for doing that. And now I bring you Joseph Ledoux. 
I'm here with Joseph Ledoux. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. It's a, it's a big honor. My pleasure. Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so you have, uh, you have done much work and you have a, uh, a new book out, which we're going to talk about. Uh, the book is called The Four Realms of Existence, A New Theory of Being Human. Uh, it's quite fabulous. Uh, before we get into the book, why don't you tell listeners uh, who you are professionally, academically, and uh, what you're currently up to? Sure. Well, my um, home is at, the, at New York University, where I'm a professor of neuroscience. Um, I've been there since 1989, and I have been working on primarily how the brain detects and responds to danger for all those years, 34, 35 years, whatever it's been. Uh, before that, though, I did my PhD studying split-brain patients. Um, and I think, you know, if we have time, I'd like to maybe start with a little discussion of that because uh, it's so fundamental to sure. everything I've done since. So, mm -hmm. so split-brain patients are people in whom the cerebral commissures, the connections between the two sides of the, the two hemispheres or two sides of the brain, have been sectioned in an effort to control intractable epilepsy. Um, it's a, it was a rare procedure done in the 1960s and 70s. It's done less so today. It was uh, done because the medications that were used to treat epilepsy were not um, very effective in some patients. And so it was a kind of a last ditch, uh, you know, kind of a Hail Mary kind of uh, hope that this would help the patients. Uh, and what it does is it prevents the seizures from spreading across the two hemispheres where they can build up some steam and have uh, cause, you know, more severe kinds of, um, uh, uh, you know, episodes of the body. So, but psychologically, they're very interesting patients. And I just want to tell you about one experiment uh, that Mike Kosanaga, my mentor, and I did uh, because it, it became the fundamental theme of a lot of what I've been doing. We present, well, the, the classic uh, situation in a split-brain patient is you can talk to the left hemisphere because language is there, but the right hemisphere can only point and so forth, so it has no kind of um, verbal ability uh, to, to uh, share things with you. So it's a little clear, you know, if there's anyone home in the right hemisphere the way there is in the left hemisphere, you have a talking conscious person. But anyway, in, in this one experiment, we put two pictures on the screen. Now, everything on the left side of the screen, if you're staring at a dot on the screen, if you're the patient staring at a dot, everything to the left goes to your right hemisphere. Everything to the right goes to your left hemisphere. So we had, uh, in one example, we showed the, on the left side, a picture of a snow scene. The guy, the, it's a young, young boy, like 15 or so, lives in Vermont in the countryside. So we showed a picture of a snow scene uh, on the left that goes to the right hemisphere and a chicken claw on the uh, right, which goes to the left hemisphere. So we said, uh, and his hands point to the correct pictures. So the left hand readout of the right hemisphere is pointing to a shovel. The right hand, the readout of the left hemisphere is pointing to a chicken. So we said, why did you do that? He said, well, I saw a chicken claw, so I pointed to the chicken, 
and you need a shovel to clean out the chicken shed. Okay, so this is the left hemisphere talking. It made up a story, a narrative to make the outward behavior make sense. Um, the left hemisphere didn't see the snow scene, but it knows that with a, a, a chicken, you have a lot of mess in the chicken shed. So the shovel would be used to clean mm -hmm. out the chicken shed. So this was a fascinating kind of insight for us. Uh, we'd, we'd, uh, every night, after, these, these patients were all in, in New England, and we'd drive up there, and we had a little um, camper trailer that we turned into a test lab. And so at night, we'd go to the bar at the local restaurant and just kind of discuss what it is we observed that day. And the conclusion we came up with uh, over a couple of whiskeys was that the, um, this is something we do all the time. Uh, we behave, and then we tell a story to make it make sense. Because a lot of our behavior is controlled non-consciously by the brain. We just do things, right? Um, like I'm talking, I'm not planning it, and I'm just talking. Um, and it's because I'm, I have a schema for a situation, like being in an interview. So my brain is in that sort of mental set. And, and so we're talking about my research, so I'm in that mental set. And so the information in memory is, that is relevant to all of that is kind of like elevated and waiting to be accessed. And that can be accessed by speaking or through behavior. Um, and so the idea that we had was that, well, non-conscious systems in the brain might be the systems that would uh, generate these kinds of behaviors, for example, emotional behaviors, uh, that and that, uh, that we do all the time. Um, but when we do this kind of thing and we see that we're behaving in a way that we didn't necessarily control, we being the conscious self, um, then we, uh, it, it's a source of cognitive dissonance because we think we have free will. And if we're not controlling this behavior, we need to do something about it. So one of the things human consciousness does is makes up stories to make your life make sense. So... From that, um, I turned to studies of um, rats because rat brains and, and human brains respond kind of similarly in, in challenging situations like situations of danger. And I spent the next, uh, you know, probably 40 something years studying how the rat responds to threatening stimuli using Pavlovian, what's called fear conditioning, but I call threat conditioning. Um, and uh, learning a lot about the the way the the, um, the that kind of learning takes place, uh, what all the circuitry is, how information comes into the brain, comes into the brain, gets to the part of the brain known as the amygdala. The amygdala controls the responses. One pathway to the amygdala comes directly from the auditory thalamus. If you're using a tone paired with a shock to elicit all this, uh, thalamus is a subcortical structure on the way to the auditory cortex or to the visual cortex. Um, and so there was a kind of, we discovered a kind of shortcut to the amygdala that could allow you to respond before you knew what you were responding to. Um, and so we, we, whereas you could also get the information there through the auditory cortex, but it was gonna be a little slower, but it would be more kind of elaborate uh, in terms of its content. So the thalamo-amygdala pathway it was a quick and dirty pathway. It could allow you to uh, freeze before you step on a snake, for example. 
Uh, so it's a very adaptive kind of thing to have. Um, but if you consciously then see that it's a stick rather than a snake, then you can walk on and, and just ignore it. So anyway, I, I spent all those years then studying how the brain detects and responds to danger doing all that. But in the process, I would also write books. So my 1996 book, The Emotional Brain, was all about this Pavlovian conditioning stuff as a model, kind of an animal model of uh, uh, human emotions, especially fear, but not necessarily only. Um, but then in the last chapter, it was called Once More with Feelings. And so I was also talking about how the human brain experiences fear and other emotions. Um, I, I would, in, the, in all my books, I would say that we don't know what's going on in the brains of other animals, uh, and we shouldn't over-attribute too much to them having uh, fear just because they're freezing. Uh, those are separate kinds of processes. I mean, that's an idea I had since graduate school, that the conscious experience of an emotion uh, is separate from the behavioral responses that we um, that we produce in those in those dangerous situations, the conscious experience is, in fact, I think, one of those narrations. That's what consciousness is—a narration about who we are. And so, in all of my books, whatever the book was about, there would be chapters about Pavlovian conditioning. But then, at the end, I would put it together in terms of how consciousness works in the brain. So. From there, we can, uh, with that background, I think it'll uh, maybe help some of the questions that come up. Yeah, no, for sure. That's very, very helpful. I want to ask just about back, back to the split brain uh, work that you did. Is there, is there a sense with that that we, we now understand that the entire brain is always working together in concert? And many, there's a much to do, at least, you know, 20, 30 years ago of, well, this part of the brain does this and this part of the brain does this. And we kind of isolated them. But how do we understand in split brain patients how the brain is still working in concert, even if they're not completely aware of how that's working? Right. So in a split brain patient, right after surgery, you have something called the acute disconnection syndrome. That means that the all of a sudden, the two halves of the brain have been split apart. So they're no longer in direct mm -hmm. communication. A lot of their communication is externally, right? So the left hemisphere will see a behavior produced by the right hemisphere and then build it into the left hemisphere narrative about why it's doing that. Um, and so you have this, the, the conflict between the two hemispheres is very dramatic at the beginning. There are stories about, you know, the patient's in the bed and the nurse is walking by and the, the left hand goes out and tries to grab her in a kind of sexual way. The right hand is pulling it, the, hand, the left hand back, or the left hand is pulling the patient's pants down, the right hand is pulling them back up. All kinds of conflict between the two sides. But slowly over the weeks and months after the surgery, there, there comes to be a kind of resolution of conflict. It's as if the, the right hemisphere kind of gives up because it's no competition for this verbally robust, like socially engaged um, um, person on the other side. It just doesn't have those capacities. It still has some you know, visual spatial capacities that are not so well developed in the left hemisphere. Um, and the other thing to notice in these patients, you know, the, they all have epilepsy and when you have epilepsy in the brain, for example, there's epilepsy in the right hemisphere, 
things can reorganize so that uh, you know th there is some language in the right hemisphere in, in many people, uh, and the uh, uh, what's what's there if there's epilepsy it kind of reorganizes to maybe bring in a little more of what it could do or might take away a little bit of what it could do. So anyway, the the right hemisphere can develop capacity. So we had one patient in whom the right hemisphere developed the capacity to read. So that was a real breakthrough because we could ask it questions by flashing on the left side of the screen, who are you? And the left hand from the right hemisphere would then pick out the letters P-A-U-L, his name was Paul. Um, and we could ask it all kinds of questions like that. So when we asked the left hemisphere, you know, what do you want to be, Paul, when you, when you grow up? And the left hemisphere would tell us verbally that uh, he wanted to be a, um, a draftsman, an architect. Whereas when we asked the right hemisphere this question, the left hand spelled out race car driver. So it's like we have, okay, he, the left side and the right side both know who he is. They can both tell you he's Paul in one way or another. Um, but they seem to have different kinds of goals in life. And that was kind of fascinating. So. It, two different people in the same brain, but the right hemisphere is, is mute, it can't talk. Uh, and so it in this particular case, there was clearly some kind of person over there. But in most of those patients that, that can't read out of their right hemisphere, you really don't know what's over there. So having language, that's, we're not gonna say that language uh, makes you conscious, but it certainly contributes to conscious, and it certainly contributes to the ability to communicate what's on your mind. I, I want to come back to 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 maybe the examples from from your work with split brain patients when we talk about the idea of the self. But before okay. before we get there, maybe just I'll, I'll set up kind of a little bit of how you set up the kind of most recent book. You, your previous book. Uh, <clears throat> deep history uh, of of uh, ourselves. Uh, I'm forgetting the title here. Yeah, um, uh, the four is, billion uh, year story. Fantastic. Of how we got conscious brains. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a wonderful book. One I highly recommend. And you, you say in the beginning that that book was very much about how we evolved, right, as as humans on the right. planet. And and this book is about what it is to be a living human being. So less about the process of how we got here, but more of how right. we're kind of operating in the world. Um, mm -hmm. so what is it that this, we have this fascination of as we're living on the planet of our mind, our psyche and the body and how all of these are important for our, our conscious, uh, being and how we're maneuvering in the world. I mean, the only way I can explain that is in terms of the, uh, the title of the book is the four realms of existence. Um, and so mm -hmm. I'll talk about what the four realms are because that kind of sets up what I think what you're asking. Yep. So, yep. you know, it, it's not that there's no evolution in this book. There's a lot about evolution. So it starts with the biological mm -hmm. realm. So every organism that has ever lived, anything that, is, that has lived is, is an organism. Anything alive is an organism. Uh, and every organism that has ever lived has lived as a biological organism. But some of those biological beings uh, developed a nervous system. So life started about 3.7 billion years ago, and about, 
I would say maybe one billion or close to nine or eight hundred million years ago, uh, the first nervous systems appeared, and those were in animals. So animals and only animals have nervous systems. No other kind of organism has a nervous system. So in addition to having a biological realm, we have a neurobiological realm. And there, you know, there are three classes of multicellular organisms that we know of on Earth. One are animals, plants, of course, and fungi. So plants and fungi can move. You know, plants can send their roots looking for water. They can bend their, their branches and leaves towards, uh, towards light and so forth. But it's a very, very slow process. And for a message to go you know, from the deep roots of the plant into the highest levels of the, the trunk is, is a, a very slow process of moving molecules all the way through that, that, that plant. So uh, it's, not, it's not a very efficient thing. Plants are stationary for the most part. I mean, they, you know, they can kind of bend and so forth, but they're kind of rooted, literally. Um, Fungi are not stationary necessarily. Uh, some of those you know, can have uh, things that, that move around a bit. Um, but animals are very mobile, uh, and only animals. You know, we can, any animal can respond in the flash to a stimulus, uh, and a few milliseconds can, can move their apparatus around and, and move their location. Uh, so we are very mobile. Very agile in nature, we, we can uh, respond to stimuli around us, uh, turn around when there's something dangerous and so forth. Now, that's not something that only animals can do, because as with many things in evolution, uh, lower, uh, lower organisms, for example, bacteria can move around in their environment. Bacteria can detect danger. Bacteria uh, can detect food and move towards it, move away from danger. Um, so that, that's kind of um, interesting, um, but it's not something that, you know, the, the three groups of, of uh, multicellular organisms solve their problem of being on Earth in three different ways. Plants and fungi did it by being uh, more or less uh, uh, slow in their responses, whereas animals did it by being very quick in their responses. Um, you know, fungi are closer to animals than they are to plants because um, they digest food internally, whereas plants only digest, you know, from the, I mean, there's no internal. So um, the, it's odd that the, the plants and uh, fungi are together in the grocery store at the same place. It's kind of just like a human thing. They, they have some physical appearances that look like so just throw them there i mean you would you could put mushrooms with a steak that would that would be okay i guess but uh, it's not what we uh, typically do in the <laughs> store so anyway they, you have these three kinds of organisms only animals can have these rapid responses to stimuli so the neurobiological realm opened up a whole new way of living on earth uh, and it's been very useful to us because otherwise we'd never move we'd never be able to manipulate things and and uh, put them together in novel ways and create science and art and culture and all of the things that ended up being done with nervous system. So that's the, the neurobiological realm. Um, 
But some neurobiological creatures, well, let me just say that the behaviors of the neurobiological realm uh, are automatic behaviors like reflexes, um, uh, habits, uh, things that are just stimulus response connections that are kind of wired into or acquired by the nervous system, but require no kind of mental or cognitive control. Um, so the next level is the cognitive level, where you have the ability to form mental representations of the world and use those internal representations to guide your behavior. Uh, so the difference between goal-directed behavior and habitual behavior is that habits are automatically you know, stimulus response uh, actions or responses that uh, just automatically come out in the presence of the stimulus, whereas a, um, uh, an, a behavior based on a mental representation is a kind of stored assembly of memory into a mental model that you use to guide your behavior in the moment. So the mental model is flexible because you can change your mind about what to do while navigating through the world, whereas the habit system is inflexible. You can only move on the basis of stimulus response. And then, so some biological organisms are neurobiological, some neurobiological are cognitive, and some cognitive ones are conscious. And um, I guess we can put off what consciousness is and all that till we get a little later in the, the discussion. <laughs> yeah, it's a big topic. Yeah, so you've, you've outlined the kind of the four realms of existence that you talk about in the book. And it's nice how you do it because you, you're kind of explaining, you know, how there is a kind of interconnectedness there of sorts. So let me ask, I'll come back to this idea about that we started with, with this idea of the yeah. self. What is this? Lots of people talk about this and lots of people have this ideas. There are some folks that will go full social constructionist and say, you know, the self is just whatever environment or context you're in and you can, you know, be who you are. Other people will say there are these very rigidly defined aspects and all over in between. For for you, and you talk about some of the history in the book, you know, with Descartes and Locke and, and William James about the self and how we build on the work. But how do you see and define the self, um, and why is that important to define? Um, I guess I guess one another side note here is when you were talking about the work you've done with split brain patients, you could almost say that it almost feels like two different people in there, right? Two different selves in there. Right. I mean, it's not, there's one person, but you know, how do we understand and define this idea of the self and, and why that's essential? Yeah. So self and personality together are troubling concepts. Uh, self in particular goes back millennia and it's an ancient philosophical notion. Uh, and one of the problems I think we have in science is we, sometimes take these ancient things too seriously um, or take ph philosophical ideas too seriously. And then when we try to do science, we kind of force those things. It's like putting a you know, square peg into a round hole in a way. We make it work because we believe that we have a self. And so we try to make it work scientifically. And there are all kinds of um, discussions about that. And, you know, a philosopher, some philosophers say that, you know, Things like, you know, uh, there's no one has ever been or ever was a self. All uh, the self is a very popular topic, but nobody agrees about what it is. And 
everything one says about self is controversial. So I decided in this book, what I wanted to do is to take the ideas of self and personality and ask, what are their features? Because they're, the things that have been discovered in their name, I think, are important. But I think we get into trouble with the, the overarching concepts of self and personality. They imply too much. They imply that we have something inside of, of us that's making decisions for us and doing things. And so what I did was I said, let's see if we can have a, an entire comprehensive, I, I don't want to, you know, my publisher called it a new theory of being human, but I'll, I think of it more as a framework than a, a theory. So my framework is that um, let's take all of that stuff about self and personality and repackage it into these four realms of existence. Um, and I think it works well mm. because you don't need self and personality to explain everything about a human being. They, they can all be explained in terms of these four mm. realms, um, except one, one, one version of self, which you might guess what I'm going to say now, since what I, given what I said about the split brain thing. Um, self as a narrative is, I think, a legitimate notion. That's a, an idea that we uh, uh, tell, we talk about and tell about ourselves. So, you know, when I, my last book, Deep History, I made a, a, a t-shirt that was available for a purchase called uh, No Self, No Fear. And so in this book, I have a t-shirt that is Yourself is a Story. Not something that inside you that does anything. I just say it yourself as a story on the on the T-shirt. So I th I think that you know this idea of a uh, a self that has uh, the has agency that is doing things. You know who who is this self besides you? It's a redundant concept. You are yourself. There's nothing else besides you in there. So we don't, I don't think we need that idea, except as a narrative of that story we tell about ourselves. Hmm. Well, what, I mean, I fully agree with you. I mean, I think that the self is, the way I usually think of it is, is the self is a kind of uh, a combination of all of our experiences that we're having, right? And that entire composite is what makes us who we are, right? So yeah, I right. totally agree with the narrative. And, and that changes from moment to it's moment. It's a useful fiction. Yeah, a, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but I guess that what would you say? So in terms of like, uh, traits or personality or temperament, right. you know, these are different, but you know, a lot of overlap there. <clears throat> what would you say, or is there enough, uh, things about every individual person that there are a few qualities that stay stable, right? That there are things about you that have been true your entire life, right? Whether you right. want to map that onto temperament or personality. But there is something that is what makes you, you, and there's no other, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Joe Ledoux, right, out there, in, at least in this universe, maybe in the simulation or something. <laughs> but there's only one of us, and there's enough of these traits that kind of stay constant through time. How do, you, how do you understand that kind of stability notion? Well, again, it's about, rather than talking about personality, um, let's say we take the, the features of personality some of which are stable and some of which are not, and build them into, um, I mean, personality is more like kind of automatic things, the way you walk, the way you talk, um, things you do, your preferences and so forth. All of those are kind of low-level 
neurobiological realm facets of learning, learning about who you are that you've acquired over the course of your life. Uh, so those are just built into the neurobiological realm. The, the, I think the difference between self and personality is personality is more about behavior and uh, self is more about some kind of agent inside you and traditional uh, views of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about this, like you-ness, right, the, the individuality of mm-hmm. the self, what you're saying is, is that there are some things with, let's say, personality that are stable. Those are the things that are kind of the things that make you uniquely you as opposed to the self, which is more of this narrative or, you know, useful fiction that we tell ourselves that, but the you-ness right. of you are some of those personality traits. Yes. And they're built into the, the four realms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you don't. So need we're going to see another, this in our. Well, we don't need and we don't need to name those things. They're they're we can name them as categories mm-hmm. of what these realms are doing, like you know the way you walk, the way you talk, um, the things that the memories that uh, the procedural memories uh, that are unconscious and that stabilize how you uh, perform habits and so forth and. Those are all part of the neurobiological realm. I'm not throwing them out. I'm just saying, let's not call it personality. Mm. It's just you. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 No, that makes <clears> sense. <throat> so in, you, you've, you've, you hinted a little bit at the biological realm of things. <clears throat> One question I have, so you, you, you talk about, again, some of the history, and you had just mentioned some of the evolutionary uh, concepts that are connected with biology and, and how that's important. You mentioned a lot of that in your, your previous book. One question I have is, is you mentioned it in the book, I think in this, one of the chapters on this section about, uh, and there's been a little bit of some, 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 uh, waves made, uh, online and in some of the journals about this idea of integrated information theory, um, and how this tells us about who we are, especially on the consciousness side. You don't have to wade in too deep into this. I know it's kind of a, a thing, right. but, um, yeah. what are your thoughts about how we understand this idea of panpsychism, integration, information theory. Well, okay, so you know, there's first of all, there's a difference between integrated information theory and research that's done in connection with that. So there's a lot of research. Integrated information theory is about the integrate integration of information um, at various levels of complexity um, that is supposedly underlying you know consciousness and so forth measured by something called phi or phi that um, is problematic let's not go into the details but let me just say that um, Mm -hmm. integrated information theory itself the problem for me is that it extends beyond well the idea is that it extends into the entire universe right so it's not Mm -hmm. just about consciousness and people it's not just about consciousness in animals. It's not just about consciousness in bacteria. Uh, it's about consciousness in rocks and iPhones, uh, in the stars, and everything else. So that takes us out of the realm of the neuro, certainly out of the realm of the neuroscience of, of consciousness, uh, and into a kind of thing, meta, kind of metaphysics called panpsychism. Uh, which is an ancient idea that uh, is the consciousness or mind is everywhere in the universe. Um, now, you could maybe kind of 
get some kind of astrophysicist uh, version of that where, you know, there are lots of things in the universe and so forth. Um, but the, what, the second problem is that if you, the panpsychism quickly blends into pantheism, which is the idea that God is everywhere. Mm -hmm. So panpsychism opens the opportunity for a God in the universe to make it all the way back into our individual minds. Now, to me, this, this is, has nothing to do with science. If, if you want to be a theologian and use panpsychism as your explanation of, of how you, you know, religious people have God in their minds, that's, that's fine. I have no objection to anybody's uh, views. But science has to be done scientifically. And this, to me, goes out of the realm of science. Let's just leave it at that. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I firmly agree with you. It's interesting how some scientists are uh, enticed, I guess, by the allure of it. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't study yeah. certain things. We should study all ideas. But yeah. it does start to feel very, you know, kind of woo kind of <laughs> science. And I don't yeah, know how I, mean, how I feel about that. So I, I agree with you. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just, I just think it's, uh, it's a bridge too far. With no data. I mean, the, <laughs> that's the problem. This is... mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess one, one thing here is I want to ask about is um, there, I know that Chalmers and I think it's Andy Clark years ago put out this paper and there's a kind of whole industry now that's kind of pushed it maybe in certain directions that are strange, but there's this idea of the extended mind, right? Of like, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just brains and a skull, but that how do we look at the importance of embodiment or the role of the bodies uh, has to play for, for the brain and the mind. What do, what do you think about how this is important or, or not? Yeah, so it, let's start with uh, a simple example, which is muscle memory. Okay, you know, everybody yeah. talks about muscle memory. A lot of people talk about muscle memory. That kind of implies that the memory is in the muscles, but that's not what is at play here. Muscle memory is in the brain. Memory is in the brain. I mean, you might have some adaptations in the muscle, but the ability to, to use your muscles is controlled by your brain. And so the muscle memory is not, it, it's function of memory. It's in the brain. And um, I think when we talk about you know, embodiment, it's kind of the same thing. Let's say mental or cognitive embodiment. It's not that cognition is in the body. It's that the body is in the brain. So cognition, uh, the, the body is embrained rather than the brain embodied, in a sense, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I think we have to, you know, it's just kind of, uh, it's putting things in the wrong place, I think. And again, with the biological, neurobiological, cognitive, and conscious realms, we can understand how that works because you have the biological realm of the body, the, body you know, the lower body or the body in general, that is uh, taking care of all the life-sustaining processes such as metabolism uh, and homeostasis and so forth. Those things keep us alive. Um, and without that, none of the other realms can exist. But when you have a neurobiological realm, uh, the neurobiological realm also becomes part of the process of controlling the body in a more efficient way to keep the organism alive. But to do that, 
It has also inherited all of the biological realm properties of metabolism. Metabolism mm -hmm. isn't in, in all the cells of the brain. So, you know, the biological realm is giving its, you know, its descendant, the neurobiological realm, some properties that allows it to work together. So it's like the, these are not little stacks of evolution that we build up that, uh, that are stacked on top of each other in isolation. Each level, the biological realm, is uh, entwined with the neurobiological realm. Uh, so that the things that you're doing with your uh, nervous system are helping the body stay alive. That's why you have a nervous system, to help the body be more efficient. Now, the fact that we can do much more complicated things with it depends on taking those fundamental changes that allow the body and the nervous system to help keep the organism alive a little better. Uh, you then get more complicated things like um, uh, mental representations and so forth and consciousness, each of which interacts with the level below it. So the cognitive realm uh, evolved out of the neurobiological realm um, for example, by we can talk. I think you mentioned you want to talk about habits versus goal-directed behaviors. So, if we look at the the habit system, um, let's just take the organisms uh, known as vertebrates. Uh, so that would be fish, mm -hmm. amphibians, and reptiles. Uh, you know, animals and so forth, uh, uh, mammals. Um, so reptiles, fish, and reptiles are kind of primitive neurobiological realm organisms. They can, um, they, they have reflexes and they have habits, but there's very little evidence that they have internal representations in the sense of, you know, cognition. I mean, you know, it depends on how you define cognition, but the way I define it is in terms of using mental models and behavior. I think it's, that mental models have been discovered uh, very convincingly in non-mammalian vertebrates, uh, uh, except in birds. So birds and mammals are the two vertebrate groups that seem to have some kind of mental model capability. Uh, birds can do all kinds of amazing things. Uh, and this is an example of, of parallel evolution where <clears throat> these things were done independently. Um, so mm -hmm. we, birds and mammals didn't inherit internal representations and cognition from a common ancestor uh, because there are no common ancestors amongst reptiles that connect birds to the common ancestor of reptiles with mammals. Okay. So birds and mammals, why? Well, there's a int very interesting theory, which is that the reason birds and mammals have this capacity is because, well, let me just state a fact first, that birds and mammals are the only two groups that are functionally warm-blooded. You know, bees and ins other insects and so forth can have some kind of temporary warm-bloodedness, but birds and mammals are 24-7 warm-blooded. Now, warm-blooded means that you have a lot of energy burning in your body that's generating heat to keep you warm. And that capacity requires a lot of input. A lot of nutrients have to be consumed in order to keep that, uh, that stove going. 
the whole met meta uh, metabolic uh, capacity has to be fed uh, to keep going. You need energy sources all the time. So to do that, you have to have, you know, the, the environment changes constantly from season to season, sometimes from day to day and so forth. So an animal that has to forage extensively to keep its body supplied with, uh, with energy sources has to make good decisions because if you simply habitually go back to where you got food yesterday, uh, or let's say last week, uh, as the climate changes between from week to week or day to day, you have to judge, you have to make a decision. Do I need to go get to go to this place today uh, or that place? Um, you know, you might say, well, we, I know that there's some kind of uh, fruit uh, that is in a low terrain, let's say some kind of vegetable coming out of the ground. But if there's been a flood, then that's not going to be a good source of food today because it's all going to be rotten. So you might have to go someplace else where you have uh, fruits and nuts growing out of a tree rather than coming up out of the ground. And so without that ability to plan, you make a lot of mistakes and then you don't have the food you need for the rest of the, you know, however long you, you store it for. And birds and mammals can do that. They can make plans. They have the ability to have these internal representations. I mean, birds are not as, as quite as sophisticated as humans, but it's been said that, uh, you know, if you do careful comparisons, they kind of, you know, uh, give primates a good run, uh, non-human primates a good run in terms mm -hmm. of their capabilities. Not completely, but, you know, in certain areas. So um, it's, a, it's a very fascinating idea. Yeah, it's just the whole idea of you know corvids are you know primates with wings or whatever, <laughs> right, yeah. right? That they're very they're very very highly intelligent. So let me let me ask you. Obviously, in the in the previous book, you talk about the you know the evolutionary story, especially of you were mentioning how important a nervous system is for for many things, efficiency, and we see that. I want to ask this question: the Cambrian explosion was a huge uh bit in our evolutionary story of uh, much diversification on the planet especially after a, after a, a mass extinction and some have made the claim um that consciousness or at the very least some of the you know, progenitors or the, the early traces of consciousness but consciousness started then like it started in that period um, and they have all of these different theories about why consciousness starts kind of all the way back there in some animals. For you, when you think about, or what can we say accurately or confidently about, you know, biological or neurobiological advancements from the Cambrian explosion, where do we see consciousness from how we define it or how we understand it kind of arising? Okay. Well, I, you know, my preference is not to do that. Let's, let's start with behavior in the Cambrian and work our way up all the way, you know, as far as you want to go. But let's say we want to, I, you know, I, the fact that I focus on humans doesn't mean I think we're the end all and be all of, of life. You know, it's not, it's not that it's just that we care about humans because we're humans. So it's just me telling a story about what we care about. Um, so if we take behavior all the way through from the Cambrian to present day humans, um, what we we see is how habitual responses 
gave way or uh, became the basis for goal-directed responses, and goal-directed responses be became the basis for higher cognition, and higher cognition then became the basis of consciousness. So we can see a path from the Cambrian to us. Now, we can also then work back and say, well, which, you know, which of those animals was conscious? And that's a hard question. You know, how do you know? Um, what I like to do is say, well, let's, is there some principle that we can use to extrapolate backwards? And I have a principle that I think gives us a, a way to at least think about what consciousness might be like in other mammals. But I'm not willing to really go much further back because, you know, it, we just don't know enough. It, it gets so complicated. Uh, so if we look at the human, let's say we understood much more about the human brain. Um, and again, for the sake of argument, let's say that consciousness involves prefrontal cortex. Again, just for the sake of argument, because I, you know, I, sure. I have, uh, I, I, kind of think that, but I've, uh, not everyone does. So if we just take it from the point of view of a, a kind of test case for discussing all this, what we can see is that there are some areas of the prefrontal cortex that are shared by all mammals. And these tend to be the, the medial, um, you know, agranular, disgranular, subgranular, whatever you want to call them, areas of the prefrontal cortex. So these areas, um, if we knew more about what these areas do for consciousness in the human brain, we could extrapolate perhaps that all other mammals uh, might have that kind of consciousness that depends on these medial prefrontal areas in humans. So it's, it's like taking the function and the structure and using the structure to make a guess about what other animals, what other mammals might be capable of. So if we start with that point and then ask, well, what about other primates and the humans? Primates have um, uh, cortex that other mammals don't have. So let's talk a little bit about the difference between these agranular and granular areas of cortex. So the agranular areas tend to be on the medial side, so areas like the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, the anterior cingulate, uh, insular cortex, although insular has a kind of granular area component to it. Um, but, but these areas, uh, like anterior cingulate, uh, medial, uh, uh, ventromedial, and what's also called medial prefrontal. Uh, and it's, com it's confusing because you have ventromedial and then medial. But medial is also called prelimbic. But anyway, these medial areas with various names all lack a layer of cortex called granular cortex that is present in lateral prefrontal cortex in primates. So areas like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex uh, and the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex that are very um, uh, important in working memory in primates are lacking in these other mammals. So rats and other non-primate mammals 
have some kind of capacity to hold information in mind temporarily. But it's, it's kind of puny compared to what primates can do. Uh, and it's believed to be related to this difference between granular and uh, non-granular prefrontal cortex. So, okay, so what does granular prefrontal cortex do for working memory? Well, it allows it to hold more information and to be more flexible than you can be with this prelimbic cortex that uh, is kind of the working memory of, of non-primate mammals. Um, so it, it's an important thing. Um, and if we look at a lot of research on consciousness, uh, um, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is often talked about as receiving sensory information from uh, you know, visual cortex and auditory cortex and integrating that information into a working memory representation um, where you can be confident of what you're seeing and you can have uh, an experience of what it is that you're seeing. You can talk about it and so forth if you're a human, but not if you're a monkey, obviously. Um, so humans and monkeys have that, share that. But then there is another component of prefrontal cortex called the frontal pole, uh, Broca's area, uh, sorry, Broadman's area, uh, BA10, um, that has a component in the lateral prefrontal cortex that only exists in humans. So no other primate has that. So what might that be? Well, that might be where we have our self-reflective, self-aware kind of consciousness, as opposed to a more um, semantic kind of consciousness that the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex would allow us. So what I'm talking about now are three kinds of consciousness that Indel Tolving, uh, who I think is probably one of the greatest psychologists since William James, and he died recently, but Tolving had identified three kinds of consciousness. Autonoetic, which is this self-awareness, which he said is uh, pro probably human unique. I mean, again, we never know, but it's hard to produce actual evidence for true self-awareness in, in other animals. Uh, you know, the, uh, the dot test and all that provides some, but it's not very convincing. Um, mm -hmm. So autonoetic consciousness, Let's say it's in humans and perhaps some great apes or something like that. Um, noetic consciousness, being the more semantic, factual kind of awareness, uh, would be in non-human primates. And anoetic consciousness, which is the complicated one, uh, would be present in all mammals. So what Tolving did was based those three kinds of consciousness on three kinds of memory. Episodic memory for self-awareness, autonoetic consciousness. Uh, semantic conceptual memory for noetic consciousness. And procedural memory for anoetic consciousness. Okay, now, I, you know, in my uh, last book, I focused on the first two because I didn't know what the heck he meant by anoetic. It was just, to me, it was very confusing because anoetic consciousness is based on procedural memory. Procedural memory is supposed to be unconscious. So how can you, can, can you have a kind of consciousness based on unconsciousness? And so I just didn't get it. But um, over the years, I'd had a long-standing kind of uh, debate, conflict, so to speak, uh, with 
Yacht Panksepp, uh, an uh, animal consciousness psychologist, neuroscientist, who um, would, he didn't like my perspective very much because uh, he thought I was too cognitive, too behaviorist, and um, that, uh, that I was not fair to other animals because I didn't allow them to have consciousness. And it's true, at, at some point, I was uh, kind of denying animal consciousness because I just couldn't see, I, I had to focus on uh, consciousness being completely cognitive and by cognitive, I meant working memory and all that. I just couldn't see how you could have that given the kind of prefrontal cortex that other mammals have, which is not nothing compared to what uh, humans and other primates have. So um, at some point, though, Panksepp had also, uh, with Maria van der Kuckerhoff, had written about these Tolving's three kinds of levels. And when I read his, Jacques uh, and, and Marie's explanation of anoetic, I began to understand what it was. It's a kind of um, feeling of rightness, uh, a kind of raw feel that you just have, that you don't have to acknowledge, you don't have to say, oh, I'm having it. It's just there. And you know it's there, but you don't have to attend to it. It's non, you know, you don't have to talk about it, attend to it or anything. You walk into your apartment or house uh, and you don't have to say, this is my house. Of course it's your house. So you're there, you feel comfortable, you feel right. But if you see books have been knocked off the shelf and the chairs are upside down, all of a sudden, that feeling of rightness gives way to a feeling of wrongness, and you bumped yourself up into noetic consciousness, where you begin to cognitively conceptualize the situation, and all of a sudden, you're in autonoetic consciousness, where you're uh, afraid and, and annoyed and mad, and, and all kinds of things are going on that involve yourself, uh, your narrative self. So, through Jacques, Jacques and Marie's understanding, of anoetic, I came to understand what Tolving was talking about. But I, had a, I have a different perspective than what Panksepp and Ryak um, and Marie had, which is that for them, for example, the experience, conscious experience of fear was a kind of almost, was a kind of anoetic awareness in other animals. Now, uh, many of Panksepp's fans thought that he was talking about rats and other mammals have human kinds of fears and other kinds of uh, emotions. But that's not what he was talking about. He said they're, they're like nearly or almost unconscious. And so he's talking about this, this anoetic thing, which is on the fringe of consciousness. It's not explicitly conscious. It's just there at a low level. But for him, that all you needed for that was, for example, for fear, all you needed was the amygdala and periaqueductal gray and no cortex. But for me, you need, in addition to the amygdala and periaqueductal gray, for the experience, you need a kind of cortical cognitive re-representation, um, which I think you know, rats can have some minimalist, minimalist uh, version of that through their prelimbic working memory cortex. 
but humans have and, and other primates have a much more elaborate version of all that. Um, but only humans, perhaps, I mean, this is a, again a speculation, only humans probably have this, eight, this autonoidic consciousness where you're self-aware. So anyway, uh, that's a kind of long answer to what you were posing. No, no, it's, it's, it's very nice. I, I like the way you, you explain the granular and subgranular areas of the, of the different parts of the brain. I, I remember reading that in the book and thinking like, okay, I, I would want this explained a little bit more. So you explained it very nicely. I also like how that you. you talked <laughs> about the difference between uh, uh, Pankcep and, um, and Tolvin as well. I did want to, I, f- I figured we could probably talk about it here. It's probably a good place to talk about it because you, you mentioned in the book, you talk about a lot of things in the cognitive realm and you've been talking about some of them already yep. about the role of memory attention and, and, and uh, you know, yeah. different systems. But you, you said something in the, in this part that was interesting. You said that you feel cognition is a psychological category that we've invented, right? And that's not saying that cognition obviously doesn't exist, but could you talk a little bit more about what you're saying there? And maybe you could use an example of other things that are happening in cognition, such as where does, uh, for humans, where do emotions fit in, right? Because many people will say right. that emotions have a right. cognitive element to them or, uh, <clears throat> you know, all these different things. So maybe talk about that bit of it. Yeah, so, I mean, cognition, emotion, all of our so-called faculty psychology terms are really inventions. Um, I mean, if we, uh, to me, for example, an emotion is simply a cognition on steroids in a sense. It's like there's cognition. Let's take, uh, let's see how to say this. Um, If you... Let's say that there's a general network of cognition involving prefrontal cortex and default mode network and all kinds of uh, networks interacting with prefrontal cortex. But now we're not going to localize consciousness in this scheme here. Let's just talk about it as networks of information processing that generate some kind of mm-hmm. conscious experience. So if those networks, in my perspective, uh, are used both for non-emotional and emotional cognition. So you can, if you are in an experiment where you, um, your job is to say when you see a certain thing and to describe what it is you're seeing, uh, there's no emotional component to that. It's just kind of a, a stimulus, uh, you know, s- semantic memory kind of thing. Um, now, so the, but if that stimulus that you, let's say you're, now you're not in a lab, but you're in life, so you, you see a, a bird in a tree walking through the woods. That's just a kind of, again, a semantic thing, or you might say it's emotional, it's kind of like beautiful or, you know, something like that. Um, but if you all of a sudden encounter a snake at your feet, that is a different kind of thing. But it's, it's a more intense kind of um, uh, situation where in addition to um, letting you know what's there, you're also now experiencing, you know, your heart is beating fast, your palms are beginning to sweat, you're nervous, 
uh, all of that is adding to the the mere cognitive stuff that you um, experience when you're looking at an apple or a bird or something like that. So it's it's the idea is that a conscious emotional experience is not that different from a conscious cognitive experience that has no emotion at all. Uh, the main difference is uh, what working memory is working with. If it's only working with stimulus information and memory, uh, you need memory to understand what it is you're looking at to have the semantic knowledge. So but if the only thing going on is that you are seeing something and has no impact at all, that's a very kind of minimalist kind of experience. Um, but if there is something dangerous going on, then you have other systems that are going to be adding to it. So emotions are cognitions that have additional ingredients, so to speak. It's kind of like making a soup. If you put ingredients into the soup, you start with water and add onions and garlic, uh, you know, some other vegetables. It becomes, you know, it's like a vegetable soup. But now you put chicken in, it becomes a chicken soup. If I'm from Louisiana, so if you put roux in and some sausage, it becomes a gumbo. Or if you're from the Far East, you might put some curry paste in, it becomes a curry soup. So um, these, none of these are soup ingredients, but they are ingredients that when combined in a certain way, give the soup a certain flavor. I think Lisa Bellman Barrett has talked about things like this as well. Um, so the the idea is that uh, you know it, it it's about what it is that you are achieving in a in a cognitive experience. Are you uh, simply acknowledging something exists, or are you constructing something much more complicated? And emotions tend to be more complicated. Uh, different emotions are you know, have different degrees of complication. But again, because they are, I think, in my opinion, both cognitive, then, um, you know, it means that emotion and cognition are not really different things. It's just kind of like one thing that is more complicated under certain circumstances. Hmm. Can we, can we, so let's, let's take the example of, of fear, right? I mean, obviously yeah. you've worked on a lot of, with fear and things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see this as an emotion, but is it is it more of a threat response, or is it an emotion, or does it not really matter? Is it you're having a mm -hmm. response to something, well, it matters. and it, you're having an experience matters. of it? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, what's the for, difference here? So I, I I spent most of my career working on the amygdala uh, and its role in Pavlovian conditioning, which we used to call fear conditioning. But at some point, I had this epiphany, so to speak, where I stopped calling it fear conditioning and start calling it threat conditioning because, you know, I had always talked about emotions as um, separate from the behavioral and physiological responses. But, you know, I thought of the amygdala as an unconscious emotion detector for a long time. And so I tried to use the implicit-explicit distinction that was popular in memory research to talk about emotions as well. But in, in the case of fear and the amygdala, um, you know, the, it, 
no, it just didn't catch on the way it did in memory. Uh, and people just talk about fear in the amygdala rather than implicit or unconscious fear in the amygdala. You know, and I got to all that conscious, unconscious stuff uh, about the amygdala through that low road that takes information directly from the thalamus to the amygdala and allows you to respond before it is, you know what it is you're responding to. So that, that had always been on my screen, but in an implicit, unconscious way rather than as a, uh, uh, an explicit, conscious way. So I talked about the prefrontal cortex as being explicit fear and the amygdala being implicit, but it just didn't catch on. Um, over the years, as I got more and more into the, uh, well, let, let me tell you how I got into the amygdala work uh, in the first place. Sure. Yeah. Or at least the way I did it. <clears throat> in 1985, I submitted a grant to the National Institute of Health, Mental Health, um, <clears throat> called the Neural uh, Circuits of uh, Emotion. And I was doing Pavlovian conditioning uh, in rats. And the review came back, and it was just like flat-out rejection. And the reason it was rejected was that neuroscientists don't study emotion. Right? It's not a proper topic for a neuroscientist. Um, and I knew that, you know, that there was a lot of, you know, the, of course, behaviorism had pushed that whole idea. And, and a lot of neuroscientists at the time, and still today, are, are really behaviorists at heart. Um, so the other complaint that the guy had, a guy or gal, I'm not sure which one it was, um, was that I was doing Pavlovian conditioning, but I didn't have a non-associative control group. So that's a control group. Let's say you give a tone and a shock. So the animal can then respond more strongly to the tone for two reasons. One, because it was sensitized by the shock, or if it had learned an association between the tone and shock. And uh, that's what the non-associative control group allows you to pick apart. So, I, you know, I read the tea leaves. I knew the climate. And I said, okay, I will be a Pavlovian conditioning guy. And so I submitted the grant as the neural basis of Pavlovian conditioning, or emotional conditioning, I guess I called it. But it didn't go all the way in dropping that. And... I got the grant. Not only did I get it, it was awarded <laughs> as a merit award. So I got it for 10 years. Uh, and then I got a second American uh, merit, merit award on it for, 20, for the 20-year stretch. All kind of uh, masquerading. It's Halloween, so I was masquerading as a Pavlovian conditioning <laughs> researcher. And then when I would write you know, review papers or books, I would bring in emotional consciousness. And that's, that's where I was going this whole time. So, um, yeah, the, so I, I masqueraded in this way, and I would treat the amygdala. You know, I tried to treat the amygdala as unconscious, but the feel was not giving way. And so I said, well, okay, I think I have to do something because my name is associated with this whole amygdala fear center meme. Uh, you know, once, a, once something becomes a meme in culture, it's like the, ba the cat you can't put back in the bag. You know, it's just, it's there. It's impossible to eradicate. Um, and so I, um, you know, what I did was I decided to um, write a paper that would sort of say, okay, we need a reboot in all this. So I wrote a paper called Rethinking the Emotional Brain, published it in Neuron in 2012. Uh, and in it, I said that um, 
you know, and if we're studying rat behavior, the only thing we're really studying is behavior, or that's what we're actually studying. We don't know what's on the rat's mind. I'm not going to deny that it has something, but what we are studying is the behavior of the animal in response to the tone. Um, now, if you use the word fear, that implies that the animal is experiencing fear. So, behaviorist, many of my colleagues are, were behaviorists, uh, viewed fear as an intervening variable, a kind of mediator between an aversive stimulus in the environment and a response. So, it had no subjective meaning. Fear was not feeling. But all of the animal research being done was calling it fear. And if you look at, you know, how do people, how do pharmaceutical companies develop uh, drugs? Well, they put rats or mice through threatening situations. And if the rat freezes less or avoids less, then it must be an anti-fear, anti-anxiety drug. Uh, and therefore, when you give it to people, they should feel less fearful or anxious. But when you give it to people, they might be a little less avoided, but they still felt fearful and anxious for the most case. So I, I said this, it's wrong. It's really wrong for us to keep calling rat behavior fear, developing medications on the basis of that, and disappointing people because the drugs aren't working. Now, if you told the patient instead that this is an anti-anxiety drug, this is a drug that will help you with your physical symptoms, your behavioral responses, and your physiological responses, your hyperarousal and your avoidance. Um, then the drugs might have been viewed as more more favorably rather than it's not working. It would be working if it's doing if what it we what it did in the rats, right? <laughs> it was just the wrong kind of conception or the wrong kind of selling point. But you know, the drug companies felt, I guess, that it was. Yeah, you know, they were going to sell more drugs to cure fear and anxiety than they were they were to uh, make people less avoidant and high, less hyper aroused. Um, and you know, there's been a whole problem in the the pharmaceutical uh, approach. The pharmaceutical approach arose as a way to kind of escape Freud uh, to make make um, uh, fear and anxiety and other kinds of mental problems less mental to make them behavioral problems because of this conflation of the behavior with the mental state and so um the entire field of biological psychiatry was built on that principle that you could use behavior as a measure of the fear but my colleagues who studied rats and were behaviors by nature and by training, um, thought of the of, of fear, again, as this, not as a, a subjective experience. I mean, they said, well, yes, there's some subjective experience in people, but it's the least reliable way to measure fear. The best way to measure fear is by freezing behavior or avoidance. And <clears throat> that's the direction that the whole field has gone in and why both cognitive therapy has moved in that direction because uh, insurance companies caught wind of the, you know, the, the metrics being important. So if you uh, can measure something and, and give it a number, 
then you can get a, a reimbursement for it. Uh, but if it's all, you know, mental state, wishy-wishy stuff, then, you know, nobody wants it. They weren't going to support that so much. So the, the whole mental part fell out of mental disorders. It all became kind of behavioral metrics. Uh, and the whole RDOC movement at the NIMH had, you know, a whole list of metrics, including verbal report. But verbal report, again, was the least favored of any of those things for, for the people that cared about that stuff. So I, I think we've pushed the mental out of mental disorders. And, you know, I talked a lot about this in my book, Anxious and in Deep History, and there's a bit of it in uh, uh, the four realms as well. Hmm. So for you, when, when we look at, well, in terms of conceptually, after all of these iterations, is it is it is it still appropriate to see fear as an emotion, or should we look at it as a kind of response that's happening in this behavioral context that you've been mentioning? What's well, no, a, I think what's the, a, or is the, it just dependent on the circumstance? I think that it, the cognitive, you know, we we have to give the patient their mental states. Right? People go to therapists because they want to feel better. In many cases, right? Now, it's not mm -hmm. just because they want to. Be freeze less or avoid less and be less jittery. I mean, that's certainly important to, to deal with as well. But if you ignore the mental, the person is never going to feel better. And it's not going to come along for free by changing behavior or physiology. But, you know, I do think that, that medications and CBT, ex, uh, exposure therapy and so forth, can change behavior and can change some physiology. And that's good. That's important. But you do, you know, I, I've proposed a kind of three-step approach. First, tame the amygdala, this metaphorical, of course. Tame the, the behavioral and physiological responses. Second, tame the hippocampus. I, you know, tweak the memories a bit so that the patient is viewing themselves in a different way rather than, I'm an anxious person. No, you're a person that has some, some symptoms that, that make you respond that way. Then the patient might be ready for regular old talk therapy. Now, of course, every therapist does all three of those things, but I think you have to do them in a sequence to be most effective. And if you do that, you prepare the brain with the first two to then undergo talk therapy without the person freaking out because you've got a spider in the room and you know, you're trying to do some spider exposure therapy and they don't want that. And, but if you do that, let's say you could do that unconsciously or through distraction, expose the patient to the, the spider without the patient really attending to it and focusing on it, then, you know, I think maybe EMDR is a way that, you know, you can have that kind of distraction uh, to let the spider be there, but you're like not focused on it. It's just there. But it's getting to the amygdala because we know that you can present stimuli subliminally to the amygdala and then the patient will respond behaviorally or physiologically. But if you ask the person, what did you see? They say, I didn't see anything. And do you feel anything? No, I don't feel anything. So there's no fear in the amygdala that is driving those responses. It's just a stimulus that's driving the amygdala. Fear is the cognitive interpretation of the situation you're in. There are 37 words in English for variants of fear or anxiety. And, you know, it's not a thing. Fear is not a thing. It's a concept. It's a conceptual understanding of the environment. My fear is different from your fear. 
because we've had different life experiences that brought us to that point. And I don't, you know, I don't believe in basic emotions that are universal around the world. I think what, that what's universal in the case of fear is danger. Every culture has danger. And so they have a word for danger. And that's how people experience that kind of danger is through those words and their cultural understanding of what that word means. But just because we can translate the English word fear into all kinds of languages, it doesn't mean that all those people in all those different were those different cultures have the same experience. Couldn't you give a, a one way of understanding that could be though that let's take for the example for for example that yes everybody is having uh, an, um, the experience of the emotion of fear for the sake of argument in different yeah. places around the world, but that their expressions of those things based on their own personal experiences are different? Is it maybe just mm -hmm. the expression of how it's coming out, of how they're, they're showing that or responding to it right. is the difference, not that there's right. not an idea of fear? How, how would you understand that? Well, you know, not all emotions have big, you know, body responses. Uh, there are some that are, you know, mm -hmm. tamer. Um, and so I don't think it's, it's purely body responses. But, you know, I, I, the way I would describe myself is that I'm a behaviorist when it comes to subcortical circuits that control behavioral and physiological responses. But I'm a cognitive, uh, cognitivist when it comes to the experience. Um, so those are, but those are separate things in the brain, separate pathways. It's not like one thing. So recognizing that what the body is doing and what the mind is doing in a situation like that are separate but parallel things that happen because the same stimulus is activating the amygdala and allowing a prefrontal cortex interpretation of the situation, it seems like you know, they're coming from the same place, but it's simply a correlation rather than a causation. And every scientist is taught to, from the beginning, to be careful of causation versus correlation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. So the last uh, topic I want to, I want to address with you is, so we've talked about most of the realms, the biological, the neurological, we've been spending some time <clears throat> in the cognition, a little bit with emotions there. So I guess just to, to bring it home, it's with the conscious realm, you talk yeah. about the uh, multi-state, hierarchical, high-order theory of consciousness uh, and how much memory in the, in the PFC are, are important there. Could you just talk about that uh, a little bit more and, and how this all kind of fits together with the autonoetic consciousness you were mentioning earlier? Right. Okay. <clears throat> so um, I need to start with... Um, a distinction between what's called first-order theory and higher-order theory. First-order theory okay. proposes that, for example, um, your conscious awareness of a visual stimulus is totally constructed by your visual cortex. That's all that's needed. Higher-order theory says, well, that's important, but it has to be cognitively re-represented perhaps by prefrontal cortex, in order to be experienced as an apple or a dog or your wife or your home or whatever. 
So um, to me, one of the problems with the first order theory is that it means that, you know, the visual cortex, the auditory cortex, motor cortex, the uh, emotion areas of the brain, uh, every kind of function in the brain has its own, has evolved its own ability to be conscious. That seems very cumbersome to me. I'm much more, you know, fancy. I like the the idea that there's some kind of something that we can do in a more general sense. Like if you take visual cortex information, you send it to prefrontal cortex. Well, then you can be aware of that. But also, you know, most experiences in life are not unimodal, but multimodal. So you have vision and sounds and uh, uh, all kinds of things going on in a, a situation. And so you need to integrate that somewhere, and, and the prefrontal cortex is an ideal to do, place to do that because all those things converge. Um, so in my multi-state higher-order theory, the idea is that it's not just about sending visual information or auditory information to prefrontal cortex, but about a much, more, a much richer set of connectivities. So, for example, a visual cortex state is meaningless unless it is paired with a memory state, a semantic memory state. So that you don't know, you don't come into the world knowing what an apple is. You have to learn what an apple is as a semantic entity. And so by pairing the stimulus, by having the, the, the visual representation together with the semantic representation, and you can get that in visual cortex, uh, visual and memory cortex are right next to each other, so you can hook that up pretty easily. But then to make that conscious, you need to have that more multimodal representation, sensory and memory, uh, in other words, a perception. So a perception is a sense, sensation plus memory, in my opinion. So that perception can then go to prefrontal cortex and, and be experienced in a more kind of complex, uh, meaningful way. Um, but all of those memory areas not only connect with the visual cortex and other sensory cortices, but also with um, uh, the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex as well, and also with uh, a, an area called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which takes the, the, the kind of nascent uh, creation of a schema, a memory schema by the hippocampus, and turns that into a more elaborate schema that can then be shared with the dorsolateral and other lateral prefrontal cortical areas. So that, that's, that's like half of the multi-state uh, hierarchical theory. Um, the other thing, though, is that the dorsolateral prefrontal area also receives inputs from a bunch of other prefrontal areas. So all those other areas are getting all of these inputs as well. So there's a lot of information processing all over prefrontal cortex coming from all the sensory stuff and memory stuff and putting it all together in the background. And all of that then is being synthesized in some kind of way. You know, you've got like gates that allow information in to work in memory or not, but the the context of the situation you're in, the schema that's being constructed in working memory is allowing more and less information in, or sometimes being forced on it in a way. But what, what's going on is that the, uh, uh, it's not simply about getting a stimulus from 
the visual system to the prefrontal cortex, it's about nonstop, continuous, multiple streams of integration of information that is creating a mental model of the situation. That model, let's say if you're walking through an uh, apple orchard, that model is of a, a day in the country and at an apple orchard. So you see a red apple on the tree, you recognize that. But if you see a yellow apple on the tree, you recognize that. And someone put a, a purple apple you know, model on the tree, you would, so, you, know, you would stop for a second and think about it and say, oh, it's a model of an apple. It's not an apple, but you would recognize it as apple-like. Um, all of that happens very fast because you're in that, that schematic situation where you have a template of what's going on. So the, the multi-state idea is that uh, it, you know, it has many kind of uh, backdoors and uh, a lot of duplication of, of processing that gives you a very rich mental model. Now, the mental model itself in my, uh, in my model or framework is not itself conscious, right? It's just a, a higher order representation of a lot of information. To be conscious of that, um, you have to re-represent it in some way. So this is a feature of what is called a higher order theory. Um, David Rosenthal, a, a philosopher at uh, Graduate Center in, in uh, New York, is the kind of the, the godfather of all this. He's not, I don't think he's the inventor, but he's, he's the current uh, kind of leader of this. And you know, he has this conception where a, um, a higher order state is not itself conscious. It can only be conscious if it's re-represented by another higher order state. Now that for him, that leads to an infinite regress of higher order states. But in my framework, what I propose is that when you get to that second higher order state, that feeds back into the middle model and allows a loop to continue and to be constantly updated so you can become through that loop conscious of what you were just conscious of but in a more refined way so the idea is that there are uh, that the output of the middle model goes to a narrative stream or goes to let's just call it a, a stream and the stream has three outputs. One is to overt behavior, like you know, goal-directed behavior. Another is to speech. And another is to the second middle model, the second higher order state. Now, but that's all non-conscious, pre-conscious. Now, why do I emphasize that? Well, I'm talking, I'm not planning any of it, right? It's just coming out. And that is the pre-conscious mental model that's doing all of that based on the schema of the situation I'm in. So I'm just talking, it's just coming out because I have all the information in that mental model or accessible by the mental model to allow me to talk in a fairly coherent, sometimes not so coherent way, but I, I get the information out. Now, once you get information into the second mental model, that goes back to the first one to give you that loop, you also get three outputs of the second mental model, the conscious mental model. 
So the first mental model is non-conscious or pre-conscious. Second mental model is conscious. So the second mental model also can allow you to behave, to talk, but also to be conscious of what's going on. And so in other words, maybe, you know, I'm not going to be a, a big proponent of free will here, but I'm, I'm kind of a proponent of it. I, I believe that uh, you know, there's something to it. Um, but even if there's not, it, it, we, if we, um, you know, if it's an illusion, it doesn't disrupt my model because it just means that we think we're conscious. We, we, lose, we are illusory, uh, aware that we're conscious, uh, but, and, and we have the illusion that we're controlling our behavior. Uh, we're not illusory, we're conscious. We're aware of, of something, uh, but our ability to control our behavior could be some kind of illusion. Um, now, I was at uh, Yale giving a lecture and describing this very complicated thing, and I hope you and your listeners can work through all that. You might have to get the book to kind of see the diagrams to make it work. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not being uh, <laughs> difficult by, uh, for on purpose. Um, this, this graduate student at Yale wrote to me after I gave the talk, and she said, well, I have an idea of how you can tell. Oh, what, one of the things I said was that you know, part of the problem is that you know, this makes consciousness research even more complicated than we thought it was, because you've got these <laughs> two ways of talking and acting, and you never know which one is yeah. in charge, right? And she said, well, I have an idea of how you could tell the difference uh, in terms of speech. So that there are these, um, you know, language models and so forth that uh, can analyze, you know, AI models that can analyze um, the content of, of uh, play, you know, text people, you know, like a text analysis of a book or uh, something someone has written uh, and break it down into uh, different, you know, areas of complexity. So what she said was perhaps these these uh, uh, these AI kinds of things could separate the non-conscious mental model, which would be a little less coherent, a little less consistent within a paragraph, a little less um, uh, all hanging together uh, than the the more coherent conscious mental model, where you're planning and talking in a, a particular way. Um, so I thought that was a clever idea about her. Now, the, I didn't talk too much about exactly what the nature of that narrative that comes out of the first mental model is, but one way to think about it is what the philosopher Jerry Fodor had called a, a mental ease or language of thought. Um, yeah. So yeah. the idea is this would be a generic language, a generic code in the brain that um, allows you to or allows the mental model, the non-conscious mental model, to take in information from all sorts of different uh, circuits, all kinds of uh, different inputs, whether it be reward processing, uh, homeostatic processing, uh, value processing, um, memory, perception, any, anything in the brain that can get into the uh, the, the first mental model would, as a modality specific kind of input would then be converted into a, uh, an amodal output that could be used in the three ways of, of acting and talking and, and experiencing and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, um, 
otherwise you could never you, you know you can't you couldn't take all those you would have to, you'd have to have some way to get the compressed integrated thing in working memory out in a name modal way that all of them can use now they're going to be different so the way you what you say and what you do and what you're experiencing are not always exactly the same right so uh, there is some 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 noise in the system added by the fact that you have three routes out of each mental model that allows something, some kind of output. But because each is a different neural pathway with you know brain areas and, and circuits and so forth, between the narrative and the output, the three will be somewhat different, but in general, fairly consistent. Well, I, I will be very honest with you. I mean, the that was absolutely exceptional the way you explained it. It it is uh it is dense for sure, but it is really really interesting. And one of the things I was thinking about as you were explaining that was, if consciousness is even half this complicated, um, <laughs> it's it's almost impossible to maybe fully know it for humans. But one of the things that we continue to try and speculate on is well. You know, is consciousness uh, something that is potential in uh, the artificial intelligence that we build or are building or things like that? And, and right. you know, you don't have to, you know, talk at length on this, but, you know, do right. you think those things are important to say, yes, we need consciousness for AI or no, we don't. We just need highly intelligent mm -hmm. machines or, you know, does right. this, does it, is it really important <clears throat> there or where do you see the evolution of things going? Yeah, at the end of the book, I, I do have a little short uh, piece on that. Um, and I think it came up earlier in the book as well. But the basic idea is that, you know, I think human consciousness, in fact, you know, everything about being a human is an end result in our case. Well, of any organism, it's an end result. But in our case, the case we care about in this discussion is an end result of the, you know, 3.7 billion years of history biological history that we all have because each step along the way is some kind of you know it's an accident that this thing and that thing were there at the moment that allowed a new thing to happen uh, based on an old thing that was there a lot of almost all of evolution is taking the old and making it new um, and I think without that particular kind of history with all of the the you know, the accidents and all of the happenstance that went through it, you could never completely duplicate it. I mean, even if you don't buy that, let me try another argument, which is that, you know, a lot of uh, the idea of AI is based on, you know, that you could, if you could model uh, every neuron in the brain, and then you could have a, a perfect, uh, uh, you know, artificial model of what all the, everything the brain does. But that, that's such mm -hmm. a superficial analysis. A neuron is like, there's a whole, you know, gigantic amount of information and complexity and processes and molecules and things, uh, metabolism and homeostasis, all that is happening in there and is within an environment of other neurons doing all that. I mean, you could connect the, the neuron, the artificial neurons together. And you might be able to make 
you know, the, the, all of the chemical ingredients and put all of that in there, if, if you, you know, with, with enough time and com computational power. Um, but I really think that if you don't have that evolutionary history, it's not going to be the same thing. So I don't, I don't think conscious AI is, is in the works. I mean, you know, we're afraid of AI, but I don't think it's, I don't think the conscious AI is what we have to be afraid about. What we have to worry about is the mimicry of conscious AI. Mm. AI is a great mimic, um, but, you know, the, the, now the emphasis on artificial consciousness, I think is the, uh, is, is a leap from the idea that consciousness and intelligence are the same thing, and they're not. And that's the big problem mm -hmm. uh, with this whole, I think, enterprise. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> well, the, the book is called The Four Realms of Existence, A New Theory of Being Human. Um, it's absolutely uh, brilliant. I, I greatly enjoyed it. I enjoy all of your work, all of your research that you've done. Um, we didn't get to talk to many other, about many other things, but that's okay. It's an excuse just to have you back on again at some point. Um, is there any place that you would want to point people to uh, specifically? Well, I, no, I just think the, um, you know, I think we've covered the, the topic itself. There are four realms. The realms are not independent. They're totally entwined, and they make us who we are. They're, everything about who and what a human is can be explained in those four realms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, Joe, this was absolutely so much fun. I feel I feel so uh, enriched with all of the wisdom I've downloaded from you for the almost two hours. I'm, I'm so so grateful. Uh, really, really appreciate well, it. So, so big thanks. Thank you. <laughs>